London is not just some city. Its spirit stands outside of time. Certain places have influenced its citizens. It is not only a setting, but a presence, a character in various films, novels and poems. My name is Philip Rutgers and I search for London's spirit. Follow me into a secret world. Follow me to London beyond time and place. This podcast is based on my YouTube series, Talks Beyond Time and Place. Hello, everybody, to this very first episode of Talks Beyond Time and Place. Um, my name is Philipp Radgas. My guest today, my first guest ever, and hopefully not my last guest ever, uh, is David Charning. Uh, David is a Londoner. Uh, he was born, I'm going to introduce you a little bit. Uh, he was born and brought up in Bethnal Green and still lives there, uh, if I'm mm -hmm. correct. That's correct, yes. And he's a historian, a writer, and a qualified city tour guide. And mm -hmm. apart from doing his own charter walks, he's uh, part of Footprints of London, and he's employed as a tutor for tour guiding. So welcome, David. Thank you very much, Phil. I mentioned quite a lot of things in uh, the introduction there. And uh, so maybe the best way to start our conversation, our talk, is to ask you, how and when did you decide to become a tour guide? Oh, it was something that was hanging around, as it were, for a long while, um, ever since really my my teenage years in the early 1980s, I got the habit of just wandering around and, and finding places that I hadn't seen before and <clears throat> picking up lots of information and knowledge and so on. And then later on, I found myself just being effectively a tour guide as I was walking along with people pointing out, oh, do you know who used to live there or, or what happened there or, or something like that. Mm -hmm. And after a while, I thought, well, maybe I should get paid for doing this. And so the idea sort of settled in the back of my mind. But it was only when um, I had to leave full-time work and become self-employed. And I thought, well, this would be a good... Um, well, a good income stream, but also yep. a good way of indulging my interest in research. Yep. So that's how it all effectively came about. You're part of Footprints of London. I mentioned that. Maybe you can tell us a bit about that and how that came, came together. <clears throat> yes, yeah, certainly. Uh, it's a cooperative of independent tour guides. It was created some years ago. <clears throat> and uh, it was uh, some guides who are qualified City of London guides and City of Westminster guides. And they thought, you know, there's strength in numbers, as it were. And it would be a good platform to um, promote our work and cooperate. And it's grown from there. And the idea really is that to be a member of Footprints of London, you have to be qualified you've got to be properly trained yeah. and more importantly a member of a recognized guiding association um, which apart from other things brings with it insurance cover oh, so yeah. we are fully covered and uh, fully trained so that's a sort of guarantee of quality as it were yeah that's yeah so we have over 40 members now and cover a wide area of london geographically as well as thematically I mean, uh, you, uh, 
I did tours with you. You, you cover a lot of parts of London, but yeah. one of your focuses is, is the East End. And we're going to talk about this in a minute. Um, but I wanted to ask you, had your, your Footprints of London festival, literary festival, something like that, uh, didn't you, just recently? <clears throat> That's correct. Every October we have our Literary London Festival. Uh, this year, of course, it was rather different because most of the events were online because of the virus. But uh, ordinarily, uh, the festival lasts for a whole month and we would have one or more tours literally every day in October. Uh, last year, we fielded over 60 different tours within the month. Uh, this year, because of the uh, virtual nature of a lot of the tours, uh, it only ran for just over a fortnight from the 1st to the 18th. Um, not all our guides are... Uh, prepared to go online with virtual tours you know it it is a new discipline yeah. and it takes a lot of um, experience and uh, an experiment to get to be able to do it in a satisfactory way that that will justify charging money for it to be honest yeah uh, but sure. also that would satisfy the guide in terms of quality and because of the restrictions not everybody feels confident about going out with groups of people yeah, I so, understand that. As I say, a smaller selection of tours this year. But uh, were you satisfied? Were you satisfied with the festival this year? The way it was, the way it worked? Yes, absolutely. Um, we managed to get tours up literally on every day of the, of the festival. There was one or more tours. And I was able to offer a, a variety of tours myself because literature is my speciality. So... I no. don't tend to uh, um, overdo it at this time of year. <laughs> but uh, no, it was very satisfactory, absolutely. Um, but very different as well, obviously. Mm. But um, nevertheless, it, it seemed to have worked well and uh, I participated in, in one or two tour spares too. So uh, yeah, I can, I can say I was, I was satisfied, I was happy. But of course it's different than, than walking the streets. And, but um, yeah. So you, you basically say you've always been a kind of London historian in a way. Later. Absolutely, that's correct, yeah. yeah. Uh, London's one of those places that it's got, it's because it's so old, I think, and therefore there have been so many people there, there are so many stories. Yeah. I mean, history, after all, is just what people have done. And yes. So the more people you've got over a longer period of time, the more history you have. Yeah. So lots of layers of stories. Can you say what uh, what the most maybe surprising fact or most interesting or, or, or surprising story that you've heard or learned on in all these these years? Is there something where you, where you say this was the most extraordinary story I've ever heard or I've ever encountered? Well, I mean, there were various things, but uh, when I was training to be a city guide in 2012 to 13, um, <clears throat> I was sort of rather teased because I found... Uh, an interesting fact about there's a little alleyway behind the Bank of England mm -hmm. and it's called Founders Court and it was the center of British telecommunications from 1848 through to the early 1900s and nobody knows because no. there's nothing there to tell you but it was where um, our very first telegraph company the electric telegraph company started operations in January 1848, uh, moving from the Strand into the city. And it was so important, the network of communications that they established 
was so important that when the service was nationalized in the 1868, they were allowed to carry on for two more years. And then their network was well established. Yeah. And this is a very important fact, especially if you have an interest in engineering, um, and particularly electrical engineering, but yeah. there's nothing there to tell you. And it's just tucked away. It's a little secret alleyway with an entrance to um, uh, an office block. But that's now it. we know. Now, now everyone <laughs> that, that sees this yes. or hears this can can go there and, and now they know that it's there. You you do an, an engineering tour, right? Uh, what focus on engineering. That's correct. Um, I've got one. I've got two more waiting in the background to be developed, but the one I've got is in the city. And it's looking at the relationship between engineering and the city, because there's a lot of engineering that goes on in a modern city, as you can appreciate. And it, it not only helps the city, but it shapes the city too. Yeah. So tunnels, bridges, yeah. um, telecommunications, all these things yeah. are part of London's story. Definitely, yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, you, you've been doing these these tours for quite some some time now, and uh, I'm I'm always interested in in was there something like the, the strangest moment ever on a tour, or the strangest thing you that you've ever encountered in in terms of something strange that happened during a, a tour, maybe? Well, I suppose um, one of the usual strange things that happens is uh, when a drunk passes you and decides to want to get into the conversation. Oh, yeah. Um, I had uh, one incident where I was guiding some Italian school children, mm. and uh, we, were at, we were in the city, and we were at the Guild Hall, which is mm -hmm. the, the administrative heart of the city. And while I was talking to them, uh, a man came over, and he started shadowing us mm. all the way down the street. And in the end, I uh, managed to see some policemen, and I had to get them involved to get rid of him. Yeah. So you get these curious things happening. When you're on the streets, you are, as we say, you're a hostage to fortune. Anything right. can yeah. happen. Yeah. Um, I've had a, a bicycle race interrupt one of my tours. Oh. Uh, yeah, all sorts of things happen. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, it is surprising what you get. Um, I suppose the strangest thing that's happened to me on a virtual tour is that uh, one of my customers fell asleep. And <laughs> yeah, I, I've, I've seen this happen. I, I saw this happen quite a quite a few times now on, on one or the other tours. If you if you can see your audience, which I think you can, you see them all the time, probably. Mm, that's it's, right. It's, uh, yeah, and someone someone falling asleep. I, I've seen that too. But yeah, these things happen. <laughs> well, the, the thing was, she had her video off, so ah, I didn't okay. know whether she was asleep or not, and uh, everyone else had left, and, and hear, ah. her scream was still there, and she was muted. And there was no video, and I'm trying to talk to her. Yeah. And then I unmuted her, and I could hear. <laughs> maybe, she's, maybe she's still online. Maybe she's still, she's still there. Oh, she did wake up eventually. <laughs> ah, okay. That's that's very very good to hear. Uh, so you, you already mentioned the Italian school class, and I was wondering uh, what kind of people attend your tours. What what kind of audience? Londoners, tourists school classes oh a variety um in the, the school children from france uh, sorry italy rather school i've guided school children from italy and spain uh, and at one time from germany too uh, oh. through agencies oh. but when you 
do ordinary scheduled tours where you just put up the tour for whoever wants to come along. You get a surprising variety of people. Um, one time uh, I was doing uh, my tour to Blackwall and beyond, which is where we start at the West India docks and go through to the East India docks. And I actually only had two people booked on it and they were a Swiss couple. Oh. And he was really interested in, um, in the sea and maritime history and that kind of thing, uh, which I thought at the time was a bit strange for a Swiss person, bearing in mind that Switzerland is landlocked. <laughs> but, maybe because uh, he was really into it. Maybe because of that, because he, he was he naturally was not close to the sea, so he was very interested in that. Maybe quite possible. Perhaps. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Mm. yeah. So you get a wide range of people, um, but also locals as well, as you say. Um, one of the interesting things about tour guiding is you get someone coming on your tour especially an east end one yeah and you'll get someone who says well i've seen that for years and didn't know what it was you know or or you know i, I didn't realize just around the corner from where i live or where i work is something that interesting and you open up new yeah. um <clears throat> viewpoints yeah. onto where people live or or where they work of course as well yeah mm. sure I mean, yeah, that, that's interesting because I, I realized I, I, I did tours in, in London with you and, and with, with other people, but you never do tours where you live. You never join a, a tour where in, in the town where you live or where you work. But yeah, I mean, as I said, you're a Londoner, you, you were born there, you were raised there. And how do you develop your tours? I mean, I think this is very an, an interesting process. process, process. Hmm. Well, um, I mean, obviously you get commissions sometimes, and so you have to do something specific. But if I'm doing something of my own, then obviously it will usually follow an interest of mine. So it'll be um, like mainly literary, but also I have an interest in crime and the law, and also in philanthropy as well, because they're the two sides of um, human experience, as it were, that reveal most about people mm -hmm. and human nature. Uh, but I'm also a medievalist by training, so I'm very interested in medieval London yeah. and indeed Roman London. Um, so usually an idea will sort of spring up. So you think, oh, well, that that could make a good tour. But then you have to take into mind um, logistics, yeah, where, sure. where things are. Yeah. So sometimes you can do a tour that uh, that will follow geographically will follow a story. Yeah. So, for instance, the Great Fire of London tour that I do will follow the progress of the fire, and uh, I do another tour about Henry VIII uh, be becoming the supreme head of the English Church, and we're able to follow that through characters um, who were involved in the story. And so the story more or less flows uh, chronologically, but you're lucky if that happens. Right. Yeah. And then you just essentially look around. You see what there is that could support a tour. Yeah. Obviously, as you get to know a place more, so uh, the city, I've guided quite a lot over the years in the city, so I can do that largely in my head. But um, areas that you're not that familiar with, you need to just wander around and uh, usually you yeah. do some preliminary work using Google Street View or something like that yeah. um, and say, well, well, what can I see that's here that reflects that story? And yeah, you but... Go on from there. Mm. No, sorry. Yeah. 
but yeah, I think this is this is very very interesting because I, I like these these kind of of, of uh, you know I, I look at the map and I think how would I if, if I were there how would I develop a tour I, I'm I'm still the apprentice if you like but I, but I think how would I would I develop a tour in, in for this subject or that subject where would I go which which places would I go how can I connect these places how can you go from A to B without you know I, I think this is a very very this is fun this is but also a lot of work yeah it is a lot of work uh, especially when you get to the research stage yeah um, because uh, as a guide you you always research too much. Yeah. <laughs> you get too much material, and then you have to cut it down. Yeah. But the things you don't use, of course, you keep them because you can use them later on in another tour. Yeah, sure. So you, yeah, you always recycle what you don't use. Yeah. Um, but uh, inevitably, as you will know, when you start researching something, an idea will come to you, and you follow that line and that line, as they say, going down the rabbit hole, as it were, uh, finding out new things. And so yeah. it can be quite labor-intensive. Yeah, but interesting but in the same yeah. way. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, we we talked about it. You have a wide, a wide variety of, of topics. You do a lot of, of tours. Uh, I did a Charles Dickens tour with you. I did a Shakespeare tour with you, for That's example. Right. These are just two of your tours. But this this series is called uh, Talks Via Time and Place, and we both share an interest in Peter Ackroyd and in his view. Of London. That's right. What all his works have in common is that they feature the city of London as a powerful presence, not only as a setting, but more like a character actually mm. in his works. And he also has a very interesting view on time in London, I think, uh, how time works in London. He often mentions the, uh, the topographical imperative or territorial imperative, and um, I'm going to quote him now. He says, in my opinion, people are affected by location. I have a phrase, territorial imperative, uh, by which a street, an alley, a house, and the inhabitants thereof are deeply infected by the nature of the terrain and by the history of the terrain beneath their feet. And he also says what most fascinates him about London and its history is its power, its majesty, its darkness, and its shadows. And uh, I can agree with that. I think you can agree with that too, especially with your knowledge and, and the way you, you perceive London uh, yourself. Um, and I think we could talk, probably talk about Ackroyd for hours, um, but I also think that these subjects are, are featured on, on your tour, Peter Ackroyd's uh, Monstrous East End. So the first question would be, um, how exactly did you come up with this tour? Well, I was actually uh, reviewing a book for the Literary London Society about uh, Ackroyd's London novels. And as I was reading through, I noticed that the, the writer had concentrated a lot on aspects of the East End that were appearing in Aykroyd's novels. Uh, it's called A Horror and a Beauty. Mm -hmm. And I thought, hmm, I'd been thinking for some time about how I could do an Aykroyd tour, but wasn't sure whereabouts in London I should set it. And as I was reading through uh, the work for reviewing it, I thought, well, yeah, there's a, a, a common thread that's running through of this dark side of, of the monsters that are, are located there. Uh, it's not uniformly dark. I mean, for instance, in the house of Dr. D, the East End is quite positive. That's where D uh, locates 
the mythical original London in Wapping Marshes mm -hmm. underneath. And that's where he goes down and, and finds the mystic city universal where all are reconciled. Um, I mean, so there's a lot of darkness in the House of Dr. D, but it's a very positive novel. Yeah. Uh, about, as I say, reconciliation and bridge building and so on. Yeah. Um, but uh, I initially started including that in the tour and found out it was just too long. So yeah. I had to cut that out and concentrate on the dark stuff instead. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so that's essentially how it came about. I was wanting to do an Aykroyd tour, but it was a question of, of where to put it and what to use. Yeah. So, yes, it was reviewing that book that um, gave me the focus and uh, went on from there. Yeah, and I think it's a, it's a brilliant tour. And as, as, as you said uh, earlier, this is another, uh, it's, it's again this, this thing, how do I connect places? How can I, you know, uh, go from A to B and, and what can I tell? What do I include? What do I leave out? And so the focus is on, on the monstrous East End. And uh, the novels that you include are Hawksmoor, then Lino and the Limehouse Golem and the Casebook of Victor Frankenstein. That's correct. And, yeah. and it starts in Limehouse, and and I think, I as I said, I can relate to this to this area, and I can can relate to to this perception of, of London very much. Um, and I think what's what's interesting, we I already said this is this Eckroyd's perception of time, how how the concept of time in in London, and and how he presents it in in, in his novels. Uh, in, in Hawksmoor, for example, uh, he mirrors the, I think it's the 18th century and the 20th century with with his two main protagonists, uh, Nicholas Dyer and Nicholas Hawksmoor. And um, what I found interesting is that in Hawksmoor and in his other novels too, he, uh, he uses the, the figure of the tramp, the vagrant, um, mm. uh, who's, who basically stands outside of time. And uh, you, I think you wrote an article called Called the the trope of the tramp about this, this right, topic, yes. uh, for also for the London literary society uh, for the online journal, and uh, yeah, what would you say? What exactly is so important about Ackroyd's tramp, and then what is the trope of the tramp for him? <laughs> well, the the tramp or the vagrant, um, Ackroyd takes them as an example of uh, a class of person which is outside society it's outside the um the norms the fashions of society they have their own way of living their own yeah. um way of getting by and their own perspective and he sees in the vagrant a kind of eternal figure it's like the saying you know the jesus saying the poor are always with us mm. and uh, the vagrant is always with us there are always victims of society yeah. um as Aykroyd points out, you know, London is a glorious place, but it's also uh, a, a kind of cannibalistic monster that eats the people that make it up. And yeah. vagrants are um, part of those, uh, that class of victims. Yeah. And in Hawksmoor, he actually depicts the vagrants as <clears throat> the, the guardians of London's character and yeah. its history. And uh, when Nicholas Dyer is heading for the building site of St. Anne Limehouse, he compares them to the ancient Britons from yeah. before the Romans. Yeah. And, uh, and they are this perpetual um, uh, class of person. And if you read the Plato papers, when Plato goes down uh, below his current level and reaches the 20th century in a lower level of ground, uh, the vagrants there are special. Mm -hmm. you know, they, they are seen as 
almost mystical people. And uh, we mentioned the house of Dr. D. Well, when D finally goes down uh, at Wapping Marsh down to the mystical city Universal, he meets uh, Jennings, who is the vagrant that he met earlier in his own garden. Mm -hmm. But now Jennings is the, the man who welcomes D into this eternal city where yeah. everyone, as I say, is reconciled and so on. Yeah. So they are, for Ackroyd, they're the keepers of London's character. Yeah. And they are the, the eternal, or part of the eternal nature of London. Definitely, yeah. They, as you said, they are the, the eternal figure in a, in a way. And, and also, um, the, the, the tribe is, is the victim, you, you said that. So would, yes. would you agree with, with this idea that the, the, the tramp is the victim of London? Oh, very much so. Um, the, as I say, Ackroyd uh, is very clear that although he does celebrate London as a, a perpetual place, a shining place that, uh, that outfaces time, but nevertheless he is keenly aware of the, the, the nature of London as a place that has its victims. It, yeah. it feeds on its own, its own body, as it were, the people that, that make up London. Yeah. And the figment is a classic example of that. Uh, and in Hawksmoor, to come back to Hawksmoor, where we see the vagrant Ned, who comes to London from Bristol in the 1720s yeah. and the 1980s to yeah. become the second victim at Limehouse. And uh, in the chapter four, which is the one in the 1980s, we actually see Ned's descent from being a respectable middle-class person in Bristol yeah. to becoming a vagrant on the streets of London. And he goes amongst the other vagrants and, and we see um, how even amongst themselves, they victimize each other yeah, and right. on each other and so on. Yeah. Um, and we can see his mental process as his mind deteriorates. And yeah. as you know, ultimately he becomes the, the second victim of presumably the architect. Yeah. in the 20th century That's so true. yeah i mean they very much are the victims of society too as yeah. well as being the as it, as it were the the mystical keepers of its uh, of its nature or probably because of that yeah probably yeah i mean the, there's also the dance and in, in rope makers feels with the with yeah, the yeah. wheel that turn it ever you you mentioned that so so they don't move uh, yeah, they, they, as you said, they represent eternal London, and they don't move. They don't move through time uh, linear, but but uh, cyclical. And I, I, I like this idea. Uh, yeah, and I mean the vagrant is also a, a walker, a wanderer, and walking is very important in in Ackroyd's, uh, works. Uh, I mean the protagonists in in Hawksmoor, Nicholas Dyer and Nicholas Hawksmoor, they both walk the streets of London in in different times. Uh, and I think for both of, of them, it's it's a very positive experience at first, and then it turns into a very dark experience. Uh, the characters in in Delhi, you know, at the Limehouse School, and they walk the streets. Uh, would you would you say that that walking London, or maybe yeah, the walking London turns Ackroyd's protagonists in, into monsters? I don't think it necessarily turns them into monsters. Um, I think what it does is engages them more with mm. London and then they react in, in the necessary way. Yeah. So uh, Matthew Palmer in the house of Dr. D, he spends a lot of time walking around trying to find D. Yeah. Uh, 
his quest to find Dee becomes the equivalent of Dee's quest to find the mystical, mythical London at Wapping. Yeah. Um, but he learns. He learns the truth about his father, the truth about his mother, and their relationship, and so on, and comes to a harmonious conclusion. He comes to appreciate his mother, the mother that previously he thought um, hated him, and that... Mm -hmm. uh, he kept at arm's length and then she realized he realizes how much she protected him and, and how much she loved him and still loves him and so on yeah. um so it's uh, to use the well-worn phrase it's a voyage of discovery it's mm -hmm. it's a way that you you engage with your surroundings and then you can become a monster or you can become uh, a, a celebrant yeah. of london and its times. So Hawk, uh, Nicholas Dyer, at the beginning of Hawksmoor, as a child, as you know, he walks around a lot and he, he engages with old London. He finds the, the broken uh, sundial, yeah. <clears throat> the broken gnomon. And uh, in a sense, uh, I sort of read that as a symbol that the, the sundial which tells the time is broken. And so it can't tell the time because place conquers time. Right, right, yeah. And uh, so a lesson that he learns through walking. Yeah. But it's only because he's taken in by this mystical cult on Blackstep Lane, that's where he learns to fear the ancient terrors. Yeah, right. And that obviously informs his uh, building project right. and leads to the murders. Right. So, yeah, it can go either way, basically. It can go either way. And, and uh, I mean, you're... You're a tour guide, you're a walker too, and uh, you deal with literature. So I, I don't think it necessarily turned people into monsters. But <laughs> another aspect that's that's important in Eckhart's London is, is the theatre. I mean, the theatre is, is in itself, it's, it's a big part of London's history and, and London's character, if you like. But what he also often connects is this uh, theatre with, with crime and murder, the theatricality of, of crime and, and, uh, and murder. In Berlino and the Limehouse Golem, I think it's interesting. Aykroyd, he includes uh, historical figures like Karl Marx and, and George Gissing and, and people like that. And I think he lets Karl Marx, he lets him say that the, that the Jew and the whore are the scapegoats in the desert of London because they are the victims of, of these murders. Um, the, there's only one Jewish victim, which is Solomon Weil, yeah. but he's a victim by accident. Right, because yeah. the killer wanted to kill Karl Marx yeah. and cut off the top of his head yeah, to see to his see. brain with all the ideas inside. Yeah. But the killer thinks that Marx lives in Limehouse and doesn't realize that Marx is only coming to Limehouse to visit Solomon Vile, that Marx lives in Soho. Yeah. So it's an accidental uh, killing, as it were. Yeah. Um, so it's not the same as the prostitute killings. But of course, without spoiling the novel for anyone who hasn't read it um the person who is the golem actually commits other murders as well right there are right. some performers who are killed right. for instance and uh and there's a domestic murder carried out as well right um, so i won't go any further than that yeah um but uh so that the golem killings are just part of the the overall uh total of murders committed by the killer yeah yeah what I also find interesting in this context, but we won't go into detail because, as you yeah. said, anybody who hasn't read it might might want to uh, find out themselves. Uh, is is the the kind of blurring between male and female in the in the novel, or in generally in, in Eckhart's novels? You know, the mm. I, I can say the 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 um, 
the prison director who puts on a dead woman's gown uh, right at the beginning, or Dan Lino himself who plays uh, women on stage. And I think this is an, also an interesting feature in Aykroyd's novels. This, Absolutely. This um, some years ago, Aykroyd did actually uh, publish a study of transvestism yeah. called Dressing Up. Um, and <clears throat> in English music, the novel where the young boy Timothy Harkham, uh, living in London with his father, who um, is a spirit medium, uh, but going to the country where his mother's parents are. And uh, he, as it were, brings back his mother through creative imagination, as it were. And, uh, and part of that involves him putting on her dress and playing her mandolin. Mm -hmm. yeah. And uh, yeah, so this question of identification yeah. through be you know, becoming another character yeah. by putting on clothing and so on yeah. and uh, of course in Dan Lino you get the character of Lambeth Marsh Lizzie the female at the beginning of the novel mm. who um, falls in love with the stage and ends up becoming an assistant to Dan Lino right and she creates a male character right on stage Written and uh, so yeah it, it works in both directions yeah yeah um, but this idea of performance is very much at the heart of Aykroyd's stuff. I mean, that's yeah. why he, I mean, he's written biographies of, um, uh, who was it now? Charlie Chaplin mm -hmm. and uh, Hitchcock, of course, for the uh, great film director. Mm -hmm. But um, this whole idea of performance is very much an Aykroydian thing. Right, yeah. And um, he has often been, sort of put in the, the sort of postmodern uh, category, you know, that he's a postmodern mm -hmm. writer, so he sort of revises uh, what's gone before. But that's too narrow a, a category to put him in. Mm -hmm. He's more a performer. Mm -hmm. he, he creates, as has been said a lot of time, he creates the pastiche. Yeah. <clears throat> so yeah. Hawksmore is a pastiche of a detective novel because it isn't actually a real detective novel, right. even yep. though you've got a detective looking for crimes. Uh, the Plato Papers is a pastiche of a science fiction novel. And you will find reviews online where people have read, say, the Plato Papers. And, oh, this is a terrible novel. Yeah. It doesn't yeah, yeah. obey the rules of science fiction at all. I said, well, it's not supposed to. It, it's <laughs> Aykroyd being a science fiction writer. Right. He's playing yeah. with the audience, but not to mock them. It's a game he wants them to join in with. Yeah. Uh, yeah, performance is very much at the heart of his work. Yeah, definitely. And I think it's interesting that he, Charlie Chaplin is in a, in a kind of way he's in, even included in the Lino and the Livers column, but mm. uh, we don't want to go too far. Uh, <laughs> what, what, what did you think of, of the movie, of the film? Did you watch it? Did you like it? The Livers column? Oh, yes. Yeah. It was... Um, Obviously, it was very well done and very well performed. Uh, it, the, the trouble with watching a film of a book that you know is you have to watch it again and again because right. the first time you watch it, you can't enjoy the film. You're saying, because, right, yeah. well, how is he doing this? How is he right. doing that? Well, what's yeah. happened there? Yeah. And uh, the, the central police character, played by Bill Nighy, as you will know, in the novel, is quite a minor character. Right, yeah. Um, so they've had to turn the story inside out. It does lose some of the delicacy. For instance, the, the series of murders, you 
a lot of them you just see in flashback mm -hmm. so you lose a lot of significance right. of course you you see the murder of solomon vile but you don't understand the whole thing about the golem with the penis right. put on the book because you don't see the penis yeah because yeah. of the film and uh, uh, but you do see the the the, the book that, and yeah you know represents. Right. although of course the illustration is william blake william blake of the flea. Yeah, yeah. It's not a picture of the golem. So, right. Yeah. Problem with continuity there. Right. But, but I, uh, no, but it is an enjoyable film. Yeah, I think so too. And it's just like you, like you just said, you to to make it a movie, they had to kind of turn it into a real detective story, although the book isn't. So that's that's basically Absolutely, the, yes. the thing. Mm. Yeah. Um, another thing uh, you you wrote another article. Uh, for the modern language review, I think about the casebook of Victor Frankenstein, and yeah, yeah. Uh, called Peter Ackroyd's imaginary imaginary projections, uh, a context for the creature of the casebook of Victor Frankenstein. Again, we don't want to say too much for those who haven't read it. Why do you think Ackroyd set the Frankenstein story in London, apart from it being a typical Ackroydian thing to do to do that? Well, I think largely that's at the heart of it. Um, Ackroyd's work really is, I think, about celebrating and understanding London. Yeah. Um, I mean, he he does enjoy writing, you know, the creative process, and he can write um, decent work that's not set in London. Um, for instance, First Light, one of his earlier novels, uh, which is set in the West Country, in the countryside, mm -hmm. um, which is um, a really good read. It's, it's a good story. And it works very well. And it also, again, expounds Aykroyd's idea about ideas about time mm -hmm. and also about the, the human community mm -hmm. and continuity. Yeah. Um, so he can set things outside London if he wants to. But I think maybe that drive now to understand London has become uh, too much of an imperative for him, mm -hmm. too much of a compulsion. Yeah. And so... Um, to understand things properly he brings the action to london i mean as yeah. you know it starts in switzerland but then he brings um frankenstein to oxford university right um, which uh, it could be practicality as a way of getting him here but i think as well it's because that way he can meet percy shelley right yeah and of course mary shelley being the wife of percy shelley and the yeah. creator of Frankenstein. So the character meets his creator. Right. What they call a metafictional moment, um, which again is very Acroidian part of the play. Right. Uh, you know, the Definitely. game, as it were, that he plays with his work. Yeah. Yeah, he often, he often, uh, the, uh, the boundaries between reality and fiction, they don't really exist for him. And, and I also like this idea because I think, in, in a kind of way, literature is, is also a good. A good way of, of getting to know London. Uh, I, I like this this attempt of of, uh, of doing this. Yeah, um, absolutely. Um, I mean, for instance, in the house of Doctor D, where he brings D's house from Mortlake in Surrey into Clerkenwell, mm -hmm. um, Ackroyd is not afraid to to mix things up. Right. So uh, in Hawksmoor, uh, we have Nicholas Dyer being born in a house in a court of a brick lane in mm -hmm. the East End. Whereas uh, he's the fictional counterpart of Nicholas Hawksmore, who wasn't born in London um, and grew up with a perfectly normal family life, as opposed yeah. to Nicholas Dyer, 
who falls among this, uh, as I say, this cult based yeah. on Blackstep Lane. So Aykroyd is more than happy to twist details, historical details, but in that way he creates something new. Right. And um, for Aykroyd, it seems that imaginative reality is just as valid as actuality. Yeah. Because you can experience both and you can learn from both. Right. Right. Imaginative definitely. projection is just taking ideas further. Yeah, that's true. That's really true. Um, so why do you think Eckhart places his, his monsters in the East End? I mean, the, the novels are mostly set in the East End, in Limehouse, for example. Yes, it's an interesting point. Um, I, it's a, it's a curious point. I mean, the the thing is, I think it's this Aykroydian thing that you know you have the different parts of London that have their own characters and reflect what's been happening over time, uh, and this is mentioned, you know, explicitly by Aykroyd at various points, especially in the House of Doctor D. Uh, and I think that the thing with the the East End, it's always been, as it were, a sort of a symbol of criminality and even though crime obviously is committed throughout London there's always been something about the East End and I think especially because of the the Ripper murders as you say and uh, before them the Ratcliffe Highway murders but also the craze and right. so on um, there were other gangs in the 60s but and the 50s but the craze were the most ambitious most, yeah. and so they became the celebrity criminals and right. again the focus on the east end um, so <clears throat> that and also the, the the radical aspect of the east end uh, various movements that have been born down there and you know, political and philosophical yeah and um of course emmanuel swedenborg the uh, the great theologian and philosopher he lived in the east end on well right. close square and was buried at the church the swedish church on prince's square which was sadly demolished in uh, the 1930s yeah swedenborg um, gardens right it's, it's that's correct yeah there's what was prince's square but mm. then it was flattened by the greater london council in the late mm. 1960s um, but uh, there's always been that sort of aspect of um, of unrest. I think as well because of the the way that the East End is populated, um, because it, it's a mixture of both immigrant populations, but also the the people who have been, as it were, the workforce. Mm -hmm. um, so as London started to expand with um, increasing amounts of uh, cargo transport coming in maritime trade of course the expansion has to go down river mm. and on the thames down river is east right and so you get the uh, the shipping industry down there then the wharves and the docks and so on and so you get the cheap labor coming yeah. in and yeah. uh, as you will know dock workers did not have regular work they turned up in the morning and either they got work for the day or they didn't yeah so only truly desperate people would go and work down in areas like that yeah and so on so you get the the hard workers uh the the more desperate type of person and also the immigrant population which themselves have their own um you know unsettled uh situation so yeah possibly because of that yeah although that's pure speculation on my part well, it's, i haven't it's actually read any fine. statements by him mm. Yeah.
Um, I mean, we've talked about Akrod and, and his, his monsters now, and, and a bit about the question if, if London is the real monster or London, London creates these monsters. Um, but in the beginning, I also mentioned that you also write your own stories and you, you published some, some books. And one, for example, is this short story collection, Death in the City. Um, and in these stories, I mean, the, the title already says it, you deal with the topic of death and or rather with the connection of, of death uh, and, and life in London, or rather with the ever existing presence of death and, and, and the dead uh, in London. Um, so how and, and why did you start writing yourself? Or, or how oh. and when, rather? Yeah. Um, the thing about the dead is they're, of course, they're everywhere in London. It's only, historically, it's only relatively late that we get the big cemeteries on what were the edges of London in mm. the 1800s. But before then, uh, the, the burial grounds were all mixed in with everything else. And so all around you, you've got little green squares and small parks and so on. I mean, just literally next to where I am now is a former cemetery, which is now oh. a park. It was the Victoria Park Cemetery. Oh, yeah. And uh, since 1893, it's been the um, Meath Gardens Park. And, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, you know, they're, they're all around. And as you would expect from a city that's as old as London. And so it just sort of occurred to me that um, really the dead, they're just the, the people that were here before. We're the people who are here now and there will be other people coming along. And uh, as I've said a lot of times to me, um, history and especially the story of London, it's just a, a continuous story. And we just happen right. to be in these chapters at the moment. You yeah. know? Right. History isn't the past, it's just no. part of an ongoing story. So it just, you know, the, 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 the closeness of the living and the dead seemed to me to be an obvious um, expression of that fact that we are part of the the continuity, which again is a very big theme in, in Aykroyd's work. Right. Too. Yeah, definitely. Why did you choose to write short stories with, and, and not a novel, for example? Well, um, I think it was just a question of practicality, really. I just wanted to exercise um, styles because uh, each of the stories is written in a different style yeah. um, and a different. Uh, so some of them are fairly serious. Some of them are fairly comic. And um, and as you say, some of them are a little Aykroydian as well. Right. Yeah. Um, but uh, the other thing as well is I wanted to write about things that I knew about. So. I didn't want to sit down and, and go searching for what would make a good story. I thought, well, what do I know already from having grown up in London? Mm -hmm. So things like the Necropolis Railway and theatre ghosts and so on. These are things that I've learned about as I've grown up. Yeah. So I yeah. will translate that into stories. So that's uh, essentially how that one came about. Ah, yeah, yeah, I, I see. And I understand the, the idea behind it, yeah. So I can recommend it for all the audiences who are watching, I can recommend it. So it's a great collection of, of uh, short stories. I've prepared one or two questions to finish off our conversations, if that's okay for you. Certainly. First, first question would be, what is your favorite place in London? Or do you have a favorite place, place in London? Ooh. 
Um, the city, I like. I've always liked the city, I think, because it's so compact. It's a good place to get lost in and wander around. Right. Definitely, uh, yeah. and that sort of thing, yeah. Although I am very fond of Hyde Park. Ah, <laughs> I think it's nice. a nice place to walk around, right? Um, especially in the autumn and uh, uh, and late autumn or winter, um, when obviously all the leaves are falling and stuff. And uh, there's a little, there's a, a police force called the Royal Parks Constabulary, mm -hmm. and they have a little police station there, and you can walk around in the cold of the winter and the dark and you see the lights on in there and you think how snug and warm it would yeah. be in there <laughs> so I, I, find, yeah. I find that rather pleasing so yes i do like walking around hyde park okay. and, uh, and st james's park as well i think is probably the most beautiful park i know mm -hmm. and uh, i've got to know that a lot more since guiding um, Italian and uh, Spanish school groups because inevitably they want to go around Westminster and they want to go to Buckingham Palace. Sure, you have yeah. to go through the park. Right. But um, because of that and also now because of the Secret Service tours I do, we go through uh, St. James's Park and uh, it's a marvellous place because of the the very varying um, shrubs and you know, flowering shrubs and trees and so on and and the, the different types of bird they have and things yeah. it's a really nice place to be okay. but it's very difficult to pin anything down a lot of it depends on your mood i suppose right yeah has dealing with london and its history and its literature changed your view of the city or, or walking the city has this changed your view on, on the city um uh, changed in the sense of deepened, yes. Um, it, it's taught me more. Um, I've learned to appreciate it more. Uh, I've become more aware as well of what I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, even in the city, I've done you know, so many tours in the city, but there are still pockets of the city I don't know. Yeah. And I wouldn't be able to take someone around, say, Austin Friars and the northeastern part of the city or the lanes off of Fleet Street. Mm -hmm. And uh, I wouldn't be able to guide them there because I don't know, because I haven't been there. So, so um, yeah. guiding has become a useful tool, actually. Um, they're right, well, I'll do a tour there. And so you actually get to know it. And then by the time you've prepared your tour, you've become familiar with the place. So it's increasing and deepening my appreciation of London. Yeah. So, I mean, it hasn't um, changed in the sense of making uh, a negative attitude positive or the other way around i still mm. like the place mm. um, although i have to say that um you get a lot of guides who are you know, oh london is the most wonderful city in the world and i love london and stuff like that. and usually they're people who don't come from london yeah, if they're yeah. Into london um either from other parts of the country or from other countries yeah whereas to me it's just home yeah right sure i'm sure there are other cities that are just as good i'm sure new york and berlin and paris are just as interesting right um, yeah but uh, each in their own way heresy for me to say that as a tour guide <laughs> but to me i i don't have that um that that view of london mm -hmm. as i say it's just home it's where i was born where i've grown yeah. up i see what and, you mean uh, yeah. yeah yeah so i don't so much love it like a lover i love it like a brother that's right. right yeah that's a nice <laughs> statement but there's still places to explore there's still there's always more to to find out oh yes yeah, yeah. yeah. um geographically and 
thematically as well or mm. historically. You know, you, mm. you can know an area and then but not know interesting stories. And then you find them out and you think, oh, actually, yes, you know, yeah. that is more interesting than I thought. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's that's good. That's nice. Yeah, I think this will never stop. So, yeah, <laughs> you will never get bored there. Um, what I uh, last but not least, the final question actually is: um, Can you name three Londoners that you would love to have dinner with or a drink with from ah. throughout history? Well, um, <clears throat> it would have to be Shakespeare. Yeah, of course. Um, Trouble is, I, I, I wouldn't want to pick three writers. I could pick three writers easily, but yeah. um, Shakespeare, probably Richard Whittington. Dick oh, Whittington. Yeah. Uh, I'd like to speak to him and spend <laughs> some time with him. Um, well, a third Londoner. Oh, uh, I mean, there are so many possibles. Um, probably Churchill. Oh, yeah, that's an interesting mm -hmm. choice. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That would be interesting too, yeah. Yeah. I mean, they're all strong characters in their own way. Right. So they they've they would have interesting things to say, as it were. Um, but also, um, you know, they are uh, figures that represent different aspects of London. Definitely, yeah. As well. So, yeah. So I'll yeah. go with those three. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> all right. I'll note it down and I'll let them know. So. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> I think they all appreciate a drink as well. So. Yes, yes, definitely, yeah. Uh, so I think uh, we've come to the end. Thank you very much, Dave, for this wonderful conversation. I think you have a, a virtual tour coming now, basically, or in, in, in about an hour, right? Mm. In hmm? an hour. Yeah. Which, yeah, which one, just which one hour. is it? Oh, it's, uh, it's secret writing. This is the, uh, the secret agents in literature. So George Smiley and James Bond, of course, but some others as well. And yeah. uh, some of them, which I always hope are a surprise for the audience. Certainly, probably, yes, yeah. Um, so yeah, depending on how this series uh, will develop, I would love to have you back for another conversation, maybe on another topic, we'll see. Uh, if you, dear audience, are interested, go and visit David's tours. They're wonderful and he offers them virtually. And do you offer them in person right now or only? Um, not at the moment. Okay. Um, at the moment, I'm too busy uh, converting existing tours to virtual ones. Yeah. So I'm focusing on that at the moment. Okay. So you've heard him. And if you're interested in his writing, go to his website. And he also has a blog uh, on Footprints of London. They all, you all uh, write in this blog, I think. But Absolutely. he's got some articles there, got some essays there. Um, I'm going to put a link uh, for his websites into the description below. Um, also going to put the link to some of the articles and some of the topics we talked about uh, into the description. So thank you very much, David. I'm really happy that this worked. <laughs> up well, to thank now. you very much for inviting me. Thank you. Uh, yeah, it was a pleasure and I hope to see you soon, uh, maybe in real life again, but definitely on screen. Absolutely. All right. Lovely. Thank, thank you very you much, very Phil. Much. See you. Thank you. Bye. Okay, thanks. Bye for now. Bye. Thank you for listening to Talks Beyond Time and Place. My name is Philip Rutgers. My guest was David Charnick. Music by Brian Kolacic.